You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 25, Pheasant Fealty. Stuck in the middle, Mitvu. After the Treaty of Arras in 1435, Philip the Good's international policies had to overcome several hurdles if he was to achieve his aims, which were to obtain as much territory and autonomy as he could. He switched alliances from England to France, experiencing the immediate consequences of Bruges going into open revolt, which we explored in the last episode. Despite his reconciliation with the King of France, the two cousins would continually be at each other's throats, so to speak, and on the brink of breaking into warfare once again. In 1441, Philip became the regent for Luxembourg, and this irked the dignity of certain power brokers in the Holy Roman Empire, who had their own eyes on the domain for themselves. Because Philip was a French prince who ruled imperial territories, he had to rely on his usual tactics of over-the-top extravagance and relationship building to navigate through the political awkwardness that this caused. He successfully made moves designed to maintain his autonomy as a prince of Christendom and from the 1440s harbored the idea of elevation to a kingship. This would come close to materializing several times. However, as has been the way since Charlemagne's empire was split up between three brothers who couldn't get along all those centuries ago. Philip found that being stuck between France and the German empire left little room for absolute low country autonomy. In the summer of 1435, the Congress of Arras was convened in the capital of the Burgundian-ruled territory of Artois. Philip the Good had two intentions for the negotiations, which were a. to establish a lasting peace between France and England, and b. to reconcile Franco-Burgundian relations. As you will well recall, these relations had gone from being pretty sour to almost irretrievable when the current French king, Charles VII, had had Philip's father, John, assassinated in 1419. The English deputation at Arras was displeased with any idea of a French and Burgundian love fest. Besides, the two old enemies were currently battling it out in parts of France, including for the capital, Paris, and there was so much contempt between them that the delegations refused to even meet with one another. The English left petulantly in September, having come to no peace with France and with the Burgundian-English alliance in tatters. 
the French embassy then endeared Philip and his entourage to stick around and conclude a peace between him and the king. This had been a clear objective for the king of France before the congress had started and much planning had gone into it. Philip was a very able prince, he built strong networks of loyalty below him, but Richard Vaughan argues that he was not a great diplomat. Indeed, for a long period of Philip's reign, much of the administrative duties were carried out under the eye of his right-hand man, the Chancellor Nicholas Rowland. As we saw in the previous episode, the construction of the Order of the Golden Fleece also meant that Philip had a tight-knit group to whom he could shift major functions and responsibilities. A bunch of these were often included in major negotiations, people such as the brothers Anton and Jehan de Croix, whose family had been involved with the Burgundian Dukes for decades, and whose family name would be included in the list of Golden Fleeces up until the 1890s. The King of France, eager to weaken the English by kissing and making up with his Burgundian cousin, chose the French delegation to Arras with the purpose of Philip's seduction in mind. It was led by Philip's brother-in-law, Charles I, the Duke of Bourbon, and it was stacked with other people who had personal relations with those in the Burgundian entourage. The king also targeted these close advisors of Philip. On the 6th of July, 1435, before the Congress, he wrote in a directive, quote, Be it known that we, having heard on good authority of the good will and affection which Nicholas Rolin, knight, lord of Atoms and chancellor of Burgundy, and the lords of Croy, Charny and Bossigny, counsellors and chamberlains of our cousin of Burgundy, and other servants of his, cherish for the reconciliation and reunion of us and our cousin, bearing in mind that this peace and reconciliation is more likely to be brought about by our cousin's leading confidential advisers in whom he places his trust than by others of his entourage, and having regard for the great benefits likely to accrue to us, our subjects and realm, as a result of this peace and reconciliation which we hope that the aforesaid Chancellor and Lords of Croy, Shani, and Bossigny will do their best to bring about. We grant, and have granted by these present letters, the sum of 60,000 gold salutes to divide between them as follows. End quote. He then went on to list the sums that each man was to be um, gifted, bribed, morally lubricated, He also commanded that a different sum was to be given to four other knights and divided between them. Isabella of Portugal, Philip's wife, also played a leading role in the discussions and was pushing for alliance with the French. Given her English connections, something must have swayed her in this direction. After the successful completion of the treaty, it turns out that she too had been bought off by the French king, receiving the confirmation of a large annuity that the French throne paid to Hanau, and which, as the Countess of Hanau, she had recently acquired the rights to from Philip. Clever Isabella. The resultant Treaty of Arras effectively brought an end to the internal open conflict between Armagnac and Burgundian forces in France. But crucially, and we didn't mention this last episode because we didn't want to lose focus, 
it disavowed Philip of his vassalage to King Charles VII for the remainder of their lives. As long as either of them was alive, Philip did not have to pay homage to Charles VII as his liege. With this, Philip achieved something that many other Counts of Flanders would have dreamed of, but which none besides him had ever managed, real independence from France. It also marked a major turning point in the Hundred Years' War. Even though England held a very strong position in France, at this time even controlling Paris, its power on the continent would decline from here on in. Not that we care, because, you know, the Netherlands. What will be important, however, for the history of the Netherlands further down the road, is another stipulation in the Treaty of Arras, in which Charles VII agreed to loan Philip the right to the area of Pontieu, southwest of Artois, as well as a few towns in Picardy along the Somme River, including Peron, for 400,000 gold crowns. If Charles ever wanted to reclaim these towns and territory, he could, but he would need to pay that huge sum of money. As we explored in the last episode, the immediate aftermath of the Treaty of Arras included the Bruges Revolt of 1436. When that revolt happened, it also flared up in other parts of Flanders, including Ghent, which had a mini-uprising of its own at the same time. On the day that the deans of the guilds in Bruges had arrested the governing body and taken over the town, Philip was actually in Ghent. His men were disarmed and he was technically taken hostage inside the town for a brief time, until he agreed to certain demands made by the ruling magistracy, mostly consisting of powerful workers and urban land-owning elite. Philip could not handle facing rebellion in his two biggest and most important cities at the same time. He had to focus on the recalcitrance of Bruges, so when this happened in Ghent, he took no reprisals on the town for the disrespect its people had shown him. He realized that stability in Ghent was more important than his own honor. For now, anyway. His willingness to turn the other cheek for the moment is the reason that we talk about the Bruges Uprising of 1436 and not the Bruges and Ghent Rebellion, or probably more likely the general Flemish kerfuffle of 1436. Instead, issues in Ghent were placed in a slow cooker and kept simmering and threatening to boil over for another decade. But don't you fear, we'll get another good old-fashioned Flemish revolt soon enough in the next episode. Despite the Treaty of Arras, the relationship between Philip and Charles VII would never go beyond symbolic platitudes to one another, such as exchanging godfather status and marrying their children to each other. In reality, Charles VII's main objective had been to break the Anglo-Burgundian alliance. Once this had been achieved, his lifelong-held hostility to Burgundy resumed and grew, as he became more and more bitter about certain demands that Philip had made in the treaty. As we covered previously, in 1438, Isabella again showed how good she was at playing a long game. She began negotiating another trade agreement with England on behalf of Burgundy, Flanders, Hanau, Holland, and Zeeland. This would be achieved by the end of 1439 and would turn out to last for decades, 
only being endangered once because of a touch of piracy by some Englishmen. As a result of the agreement, Charles VII would remain unplacated into the 1440s and seemed willing to obstruct and poke at Philip whenever he could. One of the most evident expressions of this was the arrival of écorcheurs into Philip's domains. Écorcheurs were armed bandits, we think best described as French land pirates. Yar. Their name means flayers because they had a propensity to strip their victims of everything on them except for their shirts. These men were remnants of now unemployed soldiers and mercenaries from the discontinued Armagnac Burgundian Civil War, which had been raging on and off for so long. With nothing to do, they kind of roamed around taking stuff from people and became an identifiable part of Charles VII's reign. Although Charles frequently condemned them, he did little else to discourage them. Assumedly, he preferred them to be keeping Burgundy on its toes rather than rampaging through French lands. They became referred to as les gens du roi, men of the king. International politics in this era always involved relations with the church. By the 1440s, Philip was the wealthiest prince in Christendom, and he sought to foster a very good relationship with whomever was the pope. As usual, that was a prickly topic at this time as much as any other, as there were serious divisions in the highest ranks of the Vatican between the man himself, at the moment a guy called Eugenius IV, and a council of Vatican power brokers. There were two reasons why it paid for a prince to be in the good books with the holy bookkeepers. Princes wanted to be able to pick their own people for positions of power within their local ecclesiastical establishments. The people who lived in Philip's many domains were under the spiritual guidance of strong bishops like in Tournai, Liège, Utrecht, Cambrai, Terroir, and Besançon. So it made sense to get like a bastard son, a nephew, or some other loyalist into that position. This was especially important in the temporal power struggles going on. Popes were like the arbiters of everything, and ruling lords would make political moves and then ask for the Pope's approval. Then another opposing lord would appeal to the Pope to disallow whatever the action was. This is exactly what happened with the seat of Bishop in Tournai, over which Charles VII and Philip both sought the support of the Pope for different appointees. Everybody, from the people of the Tournai See, the clergy, lower nobility to princes, would have to take a stance in the decision. Embassies and letters would be sent to and fro across Europe as everybody tried to get what they wanted. In the end, in this case, Philip and his wife Isabella worked hard enough to win a decision in their favour in Tournai, largely because of the very good relations they maintained with the Pope Eugenius IV. This happened with pretty much every major appointment, however, to local church positions. Through the 1440s, Philip and Charles VII had constant disagreements over various land titles, and Philip was apparently constantly worried about the prospect of a French invasion of his lands. However, Burgundian domains 
now stretched way beyond the suzerainty of the French throne and into the realm of the other great lord to whom he had to pay due respect, homage, and taxes, the Holy Roman Emperor. In fact, Philip had managed to grab so much land through his schemings and power plays that he had increased his holdings by 600%, about two-thirds of which were actually imperial lands. So although he had successfully managed to pull himself out of the feudal orbit of the French king, he was still technically subordinate to the emperor. Philip's accession to the rule of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland and Brabant had always been a prickly issue for the empire, and his right to them had never been officially recognized. The year before the Treaty of Arras had been signed, the Emperor Sigismund, who was always busy fighting Hussites and couldn't really do much about Philip collecting territories like they were Pokemon, had even teamed up with the French king, Charles VII, to try and simultaneously attack Philip. Although this came to nothing, and Charles and Philip soon after made their show of kissing and making up, Philip's further acquisitions were about to shine an even more powerful spotlight onto the growing strength of Burgundy. So as Philip kept a wary eye on the French king, he also set about coming to terms with a family that was ascending to a long-term rule in the empire. The Holy Roman Empire was about to hit a watershed moment. For nearly a century, the House of Luxembourg had sat atop the imperial throne, the political mire of imperial rule, however, was always tied up with the incessant goings-on in the church hierarchy, so getting the support of enough electors to become emperor was highly dependent on other political alignments. Also, since before the Golden Bull of 1356, when guidelines were established on how the emperor should be elected, until 1437, the Luxembourg and Wittelsbach families had held most of the important titles. When Sigismund of Luxembourg died in 1437, it would be the first real test of those guidelines. In 1440, Frederick III was elected. He was from a family who had gotten themselves the King of the Romans title four generations previously and had long been in the upper echelons of imperial sociopolitics the Habsburg family. They had finally ascended to the imperial throne. It would take 15 years before the crown was officially given by the Pope to Frederick III in 1452, but in that time, he was the main man in the empire. As you no doubt know, the Habsburgs will retain the imperial crown, which will eventually become the Austrian crown, for nearly 500 years from this point on. The current ruler of Luxembourg was Duchess Elizabeth of Görlitz. Her uncle Wenceslau had given her that title, those lands, and the income generated by them in the negotiations, which took place during her marriage to Anton of Brabant, Philip's now-dead uncle. But if Wenceslau ever wanted them again, he could buy it all back, and also the title would eventually pass on to his children. Wenceslau's brother, Sigismund, however, just pretended that actually he was the Duke of Luxembourg. Elizabeth had survived Anton, and then also survived her second husband, John of Bavaria. Wenceslau also died without children, meaning that 
the answer to the question of who is the ruler of Luxembourg really depended on who you asked. Many attempts were made by various people to take over administration and eventual inheritance of her lands. Elizabeth was broke and mortgaging her lands to another ruler was her best option, so many rulers sought to attain this. Three people came out as frontrunners. The first was a guy called William of Saxony. After Sigismund died in 1437, his claim to Luxembourg had passed on to his daughter's husband, Albert, king of Bohemia and also a Habsburg. After they both died, this claim then passed through their daughter's marriage to the 15-year-old Saxon Duke William. If he and his new wife, Anna of Austria, had a son, then that infant would also inherit the title. So William joined the jostle for Elizabeth of Gerlitz's affections, but he also rallied some pretty powerful support behind him, including the French king. And he sent soldiers and Saxon captains into Luxembourg under the leadership of the Count of Gleichen, who went about setting up garrisons with his small army, including in the town of Luxembourg itself. The second person to stake his claim was the Archbishop of Trier, Jacob van Zierk. He presented himself as an objective mediator in the tussle, but clearly had great ambitions of his own. In 1439, he paid a bunch of Elizabeth's debts in return for some castles. William of Saxony had persuaded Elizabeth to allow him to redeem her mortgage of Luxembourg, but he couldn't come up with the money in time. So in 1441, Jakob van Sierk managed to get Elizabeth to hand it over to him instead. But all of this was taking place while the third person, you know who, Philip the Good, was in his auntie's ear, with Saxon loyalists supported by the French establishing themselves ever more firmly in the administrative structures of Luxembourg, this was not a situation Philip could just allow to continue. In October 1441, he and Elizabeth signed the Treaty of Hesden, which ceded almost everything she held to him in return for an annuity of 7,000 florins. He became the governor of Luxembourg, and in February the next year, Elizabeth asked the estates to approve his ascension. Philip, who was unusually living in Dijon at the time, where he had never spent much extended time, had to decide whether to take military action against the Saxon alliances in Luxembourg. Instead, he chose to organize a meeting between himself and the emperor-to-be, Frederick III, and use his superpower of being a mega-rich, pompous show-off to help figure out a diplomatic solution. He also still needed to get that recognition of his other imperial lands. Over the following couple of years, a constant stream of messages and meetings between all the parties ensued to sort the situation out, with none of them succeeding. During this time, Elizabeth implored her subjects and the estates to submit to Philip, but in Luxembourg itself, the Count of Gleichen kept expanding the little power base that he had come across. In April 1442, Frederick threw a curveball at Philip and wrote to the estates of Luxembourg informing them that, as William, aged 18, had consummated his marriage to his wife Anna of Austria, aged 11, all Luxembourg subjects were now to submit to his rule. Ugh, the Middle Ages. Gross. Philip had had enough, 
and by the middle of 1443, he decided that diplomacy was not going to cut it. In August, he departed Dijon, and the scene was described by one of his pages showing that he did it in exactly the kind of fashion that we have come to expect from the Duke of Burgundy. Quote, The Duke mounted his horse at about 4pm. It was raining hard, and it was a pity that it was not a fine clear day, for this was a splendid occasion. The nobility was in superb array, especially the Duke, who was a courteous and amiable prince. He liked clothes and adornments, and the way he wore them suited him so well and agreeably that he had no equals in this. With him were 18 horses, identically caparisoned with black velvet, embroidered with his emblems, which were steels with flints causing sparks, and over the velvet were large studs of gold enameled with steels, which cost a great deal to make. His pages were richly decked out and wore various head armors decorated with pearls, diamonds, and belays, marvelously ornate. One salad alone was estimated to be worth a hundred thousand gold crowns. The duke himself was armed richly and nobly with vambraces and leg harness, and these, together with his horse's chanfron, were decorated all over with large jewels, which were worth a fortune. End quote. The Burgundian army basically marched into and through Luxembourg without any resistance, but for having to lay siege to one castle and spank a few small contingents of Saxon soldiers. Before long, all but two towns were in Philip's control, Luxembourg itself and another called Thionville. He sent parties to investigate whether they could breach either defences and one of the escalators, fancy French word really for somebody who climbs a wall, managed to sneak into Luxembourg and hide in a drain, from which he learned the patrol routines of the city watch and the Saxon garrison. After this, Philip and his captains hatched a plan which meant that on the darkest night of the year, the 21st of November, about a hundred of their men found themselves crouching in a moat outside the city of Luxembourg. Included in this force was a guy called Jacques de Lalaigne, before we get on, it's worth giving him a bit of attention, because this guy was just the embodiment of the stereotypical chivalric medieval knight. De Lalang was from Hanau, born to a prominent family and whose uncle was the Admiral of Flanders for decades and also a member of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Jacques would go on to become a rock star knight, the most famous throughout Europe, and earned the honorific Le Bon Chevalier, the Good Knight. Renowned for his bravery and skill in battle and tournaments, he is said to have become Philip's favourite knight, like he would have had posters on his wall with his face if he could have. We will go into this again at a later time, but Jacques had this live dream, like a bucket list, to fight 30 people before his 30th birthday. So later on, at the end of the 1440s, when he was in Naples looking for people to challenge him, he was unable to find any contestants. Such was his perceived importance to the Duke of Burgundy that the King of Naples, who had made an alliance with Philip, forbade anybody from fighting him in his domains. Delalang is going to pop up again in the next episode, but we thought we would introduce him now at the beginning of his career, crouched alongside a bunch of other armed men in what must have been a cold and tense moat around Luxembourg, ready to attack. And 
we will get into that after an ad break because, you know, suspense. Welcome back to the outskirts of Luxembourg on the darkest night of the year. Based on the intelligence that they gathered, Philip's forces actually had no problem securing an opening through the town defences and at 2 o'clock in the morning, the silence of the streets of Luxembourg was broken by the cries of Burgundian soldiers catching the town and Saxons off guard completely. The Count of Gleichen and his men retreated to the town's castle where they would hole up for another few months before escaping or surrendering. For all intents and purposes, by the next day, Luxembourg was in Philip's hands completely. Over Christmas, he arranged for negotiations to be had with William and Anna, a teenager and a child, and its terms were, of course, extremely favourable for the much more experienced Philip. He would pay them a bunch of money for them to just give up their claims on Luxembourg and to lobby the emperor to recognise Philip's rule properly. The emperor, however, refused to do this, and Philip never paid them the money. Nonetheless, he was effectively now the ruler of Luxembourg and happy to be just known as its governor. Because no imperial consent was forthcoming, it left the matter simmering, however, for years to come, and William of Saxony would puff his chest often enough to leave Philip no other choice than to leave his own garrisons permanently stationed in the territory. Meanwhile, he kept trying to build a relationship with Frederick III that would lead him to what is, at this stage, largely agreed to have been his overall objective. Philip was the most powerful prince in Western Europe, and yet his titles were still beholden to the King of France and the German Emperor, even if he had managed to personally remove himself from vassalage to the former. Philip reckoned he ought to be a king. And to be fair, if the rules of the game were that whoever had the most wealth and power was winning, then he was probably right. Over the 1440s, Philip and Frederick proceeded on a merry diplomatic dance with one another that did not reap any direct results, but exhibited an interesting example of how power was projected and perceived at the time. In November 1442, they met at the imperial city of Besançon in the French Comte of Burgundy. Philip sought to end the stalemate over Luxembourg and to attain imperial sanction of his rule over his northern low country territories, Brabant, Hanno, Holland and Zeeland. Here was the meeting of a 20-something-year-old Frederick III, recently crowned King of the Romans and Emperor-elect, with the middle-aged, experienced prince. Philip knew the power of performance and gave due deference to the royalty of the much younger Frederick. They approached each other's entourages on the road outside Besançon, Philip dressed in fine black robes and the collar of the Order of the Golden Fleece prominently displayed around his neck. A bejeweled sash, said to be worth a hundred thousand crowns, draped over him. He performed all the necessary homages, insisting that Frederick alone walk under a giant gold cloth that the people of Besançon held above them on the entrance into town. 
at the feast that Philip put on the following Sunday, he alone sat at the head table with Frederick and respectfully served him himself. Afterwards, the two retired to discuss business, which included all the issues Philip had brought, as well as issues Frederick and the Habsburgs were having with the Swiss, for example, and the infighting going on consistently between the Pope and the Council of Papal Power Brokers. Of course, marital prospects between the two families would have been discussed in the context of any alliances that they maybe talked about with each other. In the end, however, nothing eventuated and the stalemate just continued. This nothing meeting at Besançon provided a pattern that Burgundian and imperial relations would follow over the next decade and beyond. During the course of them, plans and talks continued to emerge around the idea of elevating Philip to kingship. In 1444, one of Frederick's advisors, it seems, proposed that he could become the king of Friesland, or at most of Brabant. Philip was keen on the idea, except for the only Friesland or Brabant part, as far as he was concerned, it was all or nothing. What Philip aspired to was a solidification of the lands of ancient Lotharingia, his domain stretching from Alsace to the North Sea, united under him as a king, and answerable to nobody. Frederick was having none of that, and although it would come up a few more times, eventually in 1448, the matter was dropped. Well, for the next 15 years at least. In 1451, Elizabeth of Gerlitz finally died, and so the scrabbling for Luxembourg again went up a gear. There were strong parties within Luxembourg itself that were not at all supportive of Philip, and there was a rebelliousness with which they defied him inheriting his dead auntie's titles. This unrest was then exacerbated when in 1452, Ghent erupted in one of its most dramatic ever revolts. And we are talking about Ghent here, so yeah, this one was a doozy. However, we are going to cover it next episode when we turn our attention back to domestic affairs and away from all this international politicking that we've been wading through. In 1453, calamity shook Christendom. The Ottoman Turks, whose expansionism on the Anatolian Peninsula had been threatening the West for some years, broke through the gateway between the two worlds and managed to conquer Constantinople. Two years earlier, at the chapter of the Order of the Golden Fleece, word had already reached Philip and his best knight mates about the Ottoman Sultan's intention to attack this last significant remnant of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. So he'd had a fair amount of time to think about what his response to this would be. But when Constantinople did fall, Philip was fully engaged, preparing to lay siege to Ghent. For years, he'd been fostering his good relations with the controversial Pope Eugenius IV, and he'd been talking up a crusade game for much longer before that. After all, Philip's father had led a disastrous failure of a crusade and still come out of it with more prestige and honor than he'd gone in. Philip was all about gaining prestige and honor, so of course he wanted to go and deal with this matter in the East, but of course he would have to deal with this bloody Ghent situation first, and yeah, then there was the unrest in Luxembourg to look into. It took until the end of the year before Philip had managed to subdue both and then he did turn his attention 
towards arranging a crusade, or at least making a show of organizing a crusade. His approach was pretty true to Philip's fashion. He threw the party of the century with a whole lot of symbolic grandeur. In February 1454, Philip held an event in Lille, which has become known as the Feast of the Pheasant. This was a grand banquet held for his court, complete with a viewing gallery for those who weren't quite special enough to be selected to sit at one of the three tables. The details of what went down have been preserved by court chronicler Olivier de la Marche in his memoirs, and they provide us an extraordinary insight into what exactly occurred. Most historians seem to think that although de la Marche may have been looking back on the event with some rose-colored glasses when describing it, the fact that he was actually part of the organizing committee and that he took part in the festivities himself, at one point entering into the dining hall riding on a mechanical elephant, means that we can probably trust a lot of what he says. Delamarche describes how the tables in the room were decorated with entremets, which are essentially automata, moving mechanical statues which must have been peak technology for the time. On the middle was a model of a church, complete with ringing bells and small singing people and glass windows. There was a statue of a small child on a rock, which was totally naked and continuously pissing rose water. Kind of like the famous mannequin piss statue, which can be found in Brussels today. The English word mannequin actually derives from the middle Dutch word mannequin, which means little man. So even though you can make a word look as French as you like by chucking a Q in it, actually mannequin, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Anyway, back to the party, there was a giant model ship, a Karak, entirely rigged up and packed with goods and sails and looking apparently more beautiful than any real ship in the world. There was a miniature meadow constructed out of glass and sapphires in which stood St. Andrew with a cross in front of him from which water was shooting out high into the air. On another table, there was a giant pie with 28 musicians inside it. Not mechanical musicians, real, actual, flesh and blood people in a pie, playing their instruments and songs. In a pie. There were mechanical birds and men shooting at them. There was a mechanical tiger fighting a mechanical serpent, a man riding a bear, another model ship which was floating around in a lake surrounded by castles. There was a statue of a naked woman with a veil in just the right spots to cover her naughty bits who was spraying Hippocras spiced wine from her breast while being guarded by a real live lion attached to a pillar with a chain next to a sign that read, Do not touch my lady. After the guests had admired all of these sights, the banquet began. The Duke of Burgundy and his crew sat at one table. The next Duke of Burgundy, Charles and his bastard brother Anthony, and a whole bunch of knights and ladies sat at the second table, and all of their entourages sat at the third. Course after course was brought out to the guests by little chariots, as they ate, a dazzling array of entertainment took place. They watched a rendition of the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Music by Gilles Binchoir was performed. A boy came in riding a mechanical stag, 
and the boy and the stag apparently sang a duet together. Like the stag opened its mouth and sang kind of like what you see at Christmas markets today. A fire-breathing dragon shot flames across the entire room. A couple of falcons killed a heron, which was then presented to the duke. And then finally, a giant walked into the room, dressed up looking like a Saracen from Granada, leading a mechanical elephant on which was a castle with a woman inside it, dressed in white satin like a nun, but with a black cloth over her hair. Some people speculate that this is Olivier de la Marche himself. Anyway, he or she looked around the room and said, quote, Giant, I wish to halt here, for I see a noble company to whom I must speak, and to tell them their will, and to teach them things which should be truly heard. End quote. At this point, and we'll go to de la Marche himself, quote, she explains that she is holy church, ruined and in bitter pain. She has implored help from the emperor, the Christian and most victorious king of France, other kings, lords, and all good Christians. She is now joyful that she can bring her lament before the Duke of Burgundy and ask all to reflect the shame that has befallen her, appealing in particular to the Knights of the Golden Fleece and other gentlemen for help. End quote. So with this plea by this cross-dressing chronicle of representing the Holy Roman Catholic Church, a pheasant covered in pearls and wearing a golden necklace similar to that worn by the Order of the Golden Fleece was brought out, accompanied by two damsels, upon which Philip took this most perfect opportunity to score some popularity points and at the same time make a pretty nasty jab at his infernal enemy-slash-non-enemy Charles VII of France. Standing up and speaking to the room, Philip said, quote, I vow to God my Creator, and to the most glorious virgin, his mother, and to the ladies, and I swear on the pheasant, that if the most Christian and victorious prince, my lord the king, talking about Charles, takes the cross and exposes his body in defense of the Christian faith and in resisting the damnable enterprises of the Grand Turk and the infidels. And if I am not physically incapacitated, I shall serve him on the crusade in person and with an army. And if the affairs of my lord the king are such that he cannot go in person and he appoints a prince of the blood or other lord head of his army, I shall obey and serve him on the crusade as best I can, as if the king himself were there in person. If, because of pressing affairs, the king is neither disposed to go nor send someone, and other sufficiently powerful Christian princes undertake the crusade, I shall accompany them and employ myself with them to the best of my power in the defense of the Christian faith provided that this is with the agreement and permission of my lord the king, and that the lands which God has entrusted to me to rule are in peace and security. If during the crusade I by any means discover that the said Grand Turk would be willing to do battle with me in single combat, I shall fight him with the aid of God and the Virgin Mother in order to sustain the Christian faith. End quote. So after making this very serious vow, but with very many caveats, apparently a bunch of other people in the room were caught up in the spirit of the occasion and inspired by the pheasant to make similar vows. 
This might seem really weird to us, but apparently it was a thing for chivalric knights to make vows to birds. Maybe this is something we should bring back in the post-COVID-19 world. I swear on this duck that I shall keep 1.5 meters distance from all others. Some of these vows, whilst less avian in nature, were equally funny, such as vowing to eat nothing on Fridays until having a chance to attack an infidel, or not going to sleep on Saturdays until completing this mission. In all of this, Philip got to make himself look glorious and willing while challenging his cousin Charles VII to do the same. In fact, Philip had put the challenge out now to all the great princes of the West, suggesting that he was a more virtuous Christian prince than any of them. Soon afterwards, he was summoned by Frederick III to the Imperial Diet at Regensburg to take place in April 1454. The main discussion point was to be arrangements to go crusading. His trip to Regensburg was one of only three major journeys that Philip ever made outside of his lands. He took his time, making certain visits along the way and being accompanied by all types of high lords, most notably the Duke of Bavaria, who travelled with him for nearly a week. Along the way, Philip had all his entourage splashing cash all over the place, and he paid the inns he stayed in very handsomely to prominently display his ducal banners. He made sure that his journey and arrival made as big a statement as they could, and he was clearly set to be the most eminent person at the Diet next to the Emperor. As for the Emperor, he didn't even turn up to his own party, but had to hurry off on imperial business and sent representatives instead. Namely, he had to go give aid to the Regent of Hungary, who was dealing with internal strife and also just having a terrible time of it against the Ottomans. This was one of the biggest problems that the imperial structure always had, that whoever was calling themselves emperor had so much to deal with, but there were so many political layers of decision-making that everybody had to wade through. A few days before the royal convoy was supposed to leave Austria, Frederick's chief representative, a guy called Aeneas Silvius, wrote to a cardinal about Frederick not attending, quote, I fear that in German fashion, because of the emperor's absence... We will only get another diet out of this one. Silvius ends this speculation in a way that suggests that even without the emperor present and there being basically no point to the whole thing, it would still be worth it for the party. Quote, but we hardly know what the evening may bring. End quote. Despite all his seeming prevarication and ceremony, Philip was actually eager to make a crusade happen. It would further cement his name in history, with news of the struggles in and around Hungary reaching those present, Philip stood up at the Diet and again made a solemn vow. Quote, what is the use of a long discussion? Aeneas has shown us our duty. Let others give their opinions. I will speak for myself. I realize the crisis in which Christianity finds itself. If we wish to keep our faith, our liberty, our lives, we must take the field against the Turks and crush their power before it becomes any stronger. I will not refuse to devote my person and my resources to this cause. If only some other prince who is fit for this enterprise will gird himself to go with me. End quote. For this rousing speech, Philip received applause and unanimous support and fellow pledges to go and save Christendom. Silvius later wrote that, quote, The whole assembly voted him 
the only one of them all qualified and deserving to govern a state, end quote. But now, any decision on putting a crusade together was automatically postponed to the follow-up diet in Frankfurt, as Silvius had predicted. The emperor's absence not only meant that there would be no certainty of a crusade, but there would be no discussion about the things that Philip really cared about, namely settlement of Luxembourg and imperial consent to his rule over the northern Low Countries. As Chastelaine wrote afterwards, ultimately Philip had, quote, made a long and perilous journey of little result, but full of merit nonetheless, and of glory as far as his person was concerned, end quote. He left Regensburg with his prestige and honour even more esteemed than it had been, and still making noises about a crusade. In the end, though, the crusade would never happen. No matter how willing Philip was, he could not get the support of his archenemy and cousin, Charles VII. Philip probably felt that if he could not unite with France against a common enemy who was not the English, but rather non-Christian people on the other side of Europe, then it would be folly to go without French support. He would be leaving his domains vulnerable to French attack. Furthermore, what if the rebellious nature of low country towns flared up while he was away? That could be disastrous. So at the end of the day, there was no prince fit enough to gird him in this endeavour. So he never went. The stalemate with the emperor over Luxembourg and the other low countries would continue for years. In 1463, Frederick once again suggested a crown, and once again, the terms were not to Philip's liking. However, during these sessions, certain negotiations began that would, it turns out, bear much fruit. A marriage was eventually proposed that would be between Frederick's son, Maximilian of Habsburg, and Philip's granddaughter, Mary of Burgundy. This marriage alliance will open the door for the Habsburg takeover of the Netherlands and prove a defining moment in its history that we are fast, or actually maybe pretty slowly, approaching. Essentially, in all of this, we see once more the ancient patterns of international politics in the Low Countries coming to the fore. Since the establishment of Lotharingia back in the 9th century, no single person had held as much power over the region as Philip now did. More than that, he had made the most of the extremely advantageous situation he had been born into and got himself to a point where he was more esteemed and wealthy than both of the lords to whom he was beholden, the King of France and the Emperor. However, power in these times was not just dependent on wealth and lands, but on the understanding and agreement of feudal rights that was also an inheritance from Charlemagne. Philip had managed to wrangle his way out of personal bondage to Charles VII, although the consequences on his domains were immense. He could not manage to do the same with Frederick III, who, though young, was astute enough to recognize what Philip wanted, a crown, and offered him the crappest possible version of one that he could, Friesland. Nothing against Friesland, but it wasn't exactly pumping out money the way that Flanders, Brabant, and Holland were. Also, and probably more importantly, imagine telling the Frisians that they now had a French-speaking king called Philip. Yeah, that'd go down well. Despite his own fancy golden collar, Philip would struggle and fail to truly achieve independence 
from the ancient collars of homage that were wrapped around the necks of the Low Countries. His son, Charles, would inherit and continue this struggle. Even though they were almost able to reunite the lands of Lotharingia under one king, however, they would eventually suffer the same fate as that original Middle Kingdom. While worrying about the French, they would ultimately be consumed by the Germans. But that story is for another episode. Before we finish up today, there's a couple of things that we wanted to touch on. We have really appreciated the emails, Facebook comments, Twitter messages, all the interaction we've been receiving and having with people over the last few weeks. Although our hobby is reading positive comments about how great we are, some of you choose to show your love in the same way that our parents do, by pointing out mistakes which we have made. And now is the time that we have to correct one. In episode 22, Escaping Social Isolation with a Miraculous Journey to the 1400s, we took a fictional character on a tour through medieval Amsterdam. At one point, we mentioned being in an inn, whilst a group of men in a corner played a dice game and smoked pipes. However, as was pointed out to us, tobacco did not arrive in Europe until after Columbus's journey in 1492, so much later than the 1420s we were imagining. Whoops, that was a massive stuff up, and we do apologize. Our only option to defend ourselves is to suggest that they were smoking something else that was around at the time. It was Amsterdam, after all. Anyway, moving on from digging ourselves deeper into this hole, it is now time in our bi-weekly chapter to recognize the newest members to the Order of the Golden Patreon Pledge. You can all imagine we are assembled in a great oak hall, lit by thousands of candles, to which one shall be added for each of the following names. Demetrio Dima Munoz, Champion. Leonika Sneaky Neaky Alders, Legend. Yosa Mac Christine, an absolute superstar, and the Knight of the Order who was actually the one to notice and point out our pipe-smoking anachronism. So thank you. It has been written up in the great book of our failures. And finally, old mate Nonny Nonny Nonny, who has returned to the fold of our illustrious order. We are a way easier order to join than that of Philip the Bold. You just have to go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands and sign up to receive ad-free episodes and a whole lot of prestige. And there, we can vow to the pheasant that we shall continue on this quest together to the glory of ourselves, our order, to the sphagnum, and to the history of the noble lands that are low. Oh, there's a chicken, I vow to that too. And this swan, I vow to the duck and the magpie, and that kookaburra over there. On this emu, I pledge. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.